You're listening to The Story Connective. In this episode, we're speaking with Crystal Arnold, a person who inspires others to define financial success in their own terms and cultivate true wealth. I was really motivated to have more authentic conversations about money. You know, I really see this as such a taboo topic and people are so afraid to talk about it personally, about their own personal finances, but also as a society about what we really value. Welcome to The Story Connective. I'm Rebecca Rhapsody. The Story Connective shares inspiring stories of possibility, resilience, and cooperation. Today, we are happy to introduce you to Crystal Arnold. I met Crystal Arnold a couple of summers ago, and we connected over the ways we observe how stories shape the way people interact with the world around them, which, as you know, I'm pretty passionate about. And I was fascinated by Crystal's perspectives because she particularly works with the stories people have around money. Crystal is the founder of Money Morphosis and the director of education at the Post-Growth Institute. She lives in Oregon with her husband and two children, and she's a financial coach, a writer, a workshop leader, and has inspired thousands of people to have a healthier relationship with money. Isn't it odd that as important as money is in shaping our lives and the rules of Western society, most people have a hard time talking about it? I didn't realize that I have a hard time talking about it and that that was part of my story until I connected with Crystal Arnold. Crystal and I decided to host a Story Bridge workshop together where people told personal stories about money and explored that taboo and, and hoped that we'd help our participants be more aware of their choices. And that's the kind of feedback we got. I can say for sure that planning and leading that workshop definitely made me more aware of my money choices too and how these choices helped me create more of what's meaningful to me in my own life. I respect how Crystal's collaboration with me has led to us having a mutually supportive relationship based on our shared purpose, our shared goals, and our values. I think she's really talented at walking her talk. In this podcast, Loxley, the co-founder of The Story Connective, interviews Crystal about how she defines wealth, the ways in which our monetary systems affects our world, local economies, not-for-profits, the role of women in shifting our economic story, and more. We've wanted to interview Crystal for a while now. She really inspires us to look at economy in a more resilient way, and we hope that you find this interview inspiring too. Crystal, how do you define wealth? So I have defined true wealth as including much more than just the financial aspect and actually including three other areas, which are inner wealth, relational, and environmental wealth. And so I find that that gives people a much more holistic sense of their overall well-being that isn't so exclusively measured by numbers when you're only talking about financial wealth. When the topic of economy is brought up, the names associated with it tend to be men. For example, Adam Smith, Karl Marx, John Maynard Keynes, Milton Friedman. What does the feminine perspective bring to the conversation of economy? And why is it important to have a feminine perspective on economy? That's a great question. So 
My degree was in international economics and uh, had, had mostly male professors. And as you mentioned, most of the economic theory comes from men. And I really see the economy as a place where we care for one another and where we have our needs met and offer our gifts and exchange with one another. And so uh, the word itself, economy, comes from the Greek word of um, tending to the household. And so it really is uh, that feminine role of caring for uh, one another. And so it really is important. you know, the feminine perspective is much more holistic and can see the bigger picture and is also concerned with the emotions and the quality of interaction and quality of life. And so much of what's valuable can just not be measured. And so when we look at it from a purely masculine perspective of linear goals and progress and growth, uh, we often have a black and white picture that doesn't account for the spectrum of colors of, of value and, and how we do uh, really create a quality of life that cares for both the people in our community and also regenerating the earth in a really powerful way. So I feel like bringing a more feminine voice includes things like impact investing, which is a whole field led by many women uh, looking into not only eliminating the bad uh, companies in your portfolio, but also actually measuring the impact of the companies that you invest in. So that's one example of how more qualitative measures are coming into the field of economics and why this is so important. Could you go in a little more depth of what you mean when you say a holistic view of economy versus, say, maybe a reductionist view of economy? Hmm. Right. That's uh, that's super important. Uh, One of my favorite female economists and authors, Kate Rayworth, wrote Donut Economics, which I highly recommend. And she goes into the history of economic theory and how it is based on this reductionist science from, you know, the late 1800s or so. Some of these theories about how it works as a machine with the rational consumer calculating every single decision based on uh, profit and loss and and looking at sectors independently from each other. And this is opposed to the feminine perspective, which sees the value in the interconnected invisible web that is actually is the relationship between the objects. And so coming more into a holistic sense of the economy allows us to see some of the nuance and bring in the humanness and not pretend that we're machines acting in a reductionist model. Yeah, I've been reading this book uh, by Frederick Lau Lo called Reinventing Organizations, and he talks about a developmental shift where we're moving from a mechanistic paradigm of describing our organizations to a more living organism paradigm and some of these new movements new organizations new economy movements start to describe their organizations in terms of life and life processes 
Yeah, I really, there's a lot of terms for the new emerging economics and our understanding of it. One of my favorites is the life-affirming economy. I wrote an article uh, with Fernanda Ibarra about this in Reinhabiting the Village, which is a great compilation book. And and to look at an economy instead as life-affirming, as creating more vitality in our uh, society and our ecosystems instead of extracting it. Because if we look at the modern economy and the function of compounding interest and money created as debt, that we never have enough money in circulation to repay the debts. And so there continues to be a consolidation of wealth into the hands of fewer and fewer people. And this extractive economy, I actually sometimes call it abusive. And I feel like people are suffering trauma from the abusive economy and the way it fosters competition, secrecy, um, you know, uh, how we're scrambling to get up the ladder at the expense of everyone else and working longer hours for and less time with our families and doing things we love. So our whole culture has has been formed by this uh, this way that money is created as debt and comes into being with compound interest and so few people really really recognize that and so I feel like without addressing that fundamental challenge to our society that everything else is is kind of band-aids over this hemorrhaging of of wealth into fewer and fewer corporations and individuals why did you start the money wise women podcast so in 2016, I began this podcast, and every week I interview a different woman around the theme of money. And uh, so it's been over two years now, and I've had uh, almost 100 episodes and guests. And it's such a wide spectrum of people who I've had on the show, from social workers and psychologists to uh, more traditional bankers, investment advisors, financial planners, community organizers. And so I've, I was really motivated to have more authentic conversations about money. You know, I really see this as such a taboo topic and people are so afraid to talk about it personally, about their own personal finances, but also as a society about what we really value. You know, uh, we often idolize the wealthy. And so I started this show to really amplify the women voices who are leading in different fields and who are creating economic justice by creating more equality, transparency in the way that communities choose to use their resources and affecting education and the way children and adults are taught basic financial literacy. And so I really want to empower people with not only a new story about money and what it is to them, but also have practical skills about how to track their money, how to invest in a way that's in alignment with their values, how to be entrepreneurs and work in the gig economy, which more and more people are in a really healthy way. And so I really want to inspire conversations for people to go out and 
be willing to get uncomfortable and talk about money in a way that maybe they never have before. And so I really want uh, money to be something which connects people instead of destroying relationships and driving people apart. I see because it is such a common thread to our humanity that all of us need to interact with money in some form in this modern society. How do we do that in a healthy way, which brings us greater joy and a sense of well-being and, and really fulfills our purpose here in this precious life? What is prosperity consciousness? This is a great question. Um, so as many people are probably aware, our subconscious beliefs really influence most of our behavior. And many of these were picked up uh, before we were age seven. And they're just kind of ingrained beliefs that then shape the way that we speak with other people and, and the type of decisions that we make financially. And so shifting our money mindset and really looking through our money history and our parents' beliefs and behaviors and how we maybe rebelled against those, looking at any money traumas that we had that may influence the decisions that we make today is such a crucial place to um, begin our exploration. And I find that too often financial literacy is purely the kind of academic skills of, of how to track your numbers and make a budget. And yet that doesn't address some of the deeper beliefs that we have. And so this also isn't a spiritual bypass. You know, I um, have some issues with the movie like The Secret, you know, that really fails to acknowledge the economic reality which so many people are struggling with, like I said, with compounding interest and, and the challenge of our modern economy. So I think both acknowledging the economic situation and our own personal beliefs and behaviors, and then creating more positive affirmations is a much healthier way to integrate our shadow, as it's some, sometimes called, some of those painful things that then influence how we behave. And so I find that um, moving into more of a prosperity mentality is finding a balanced flow in our life. That's how I like to define prosperity. And it's not so much about what we have or own, but it's more this sense of a balanced giving and taking that we have access to the, um, the food, the water, the relationships that nourish us on a deep level. And so this is really different for every person. And the most common programming, scarcity programming, I see is not enough that there's not enough time, not enough money, that I am not enough, no matter what I do, the inner critic is going to come in and say that's not good enough. And so I, I personally have really worked for a couple decades now with these kind of fundamental beliefs, which it's not surprising that it's so common. Look at modern marketing has told us that you're not enough unless you consume this product. And so they are uh, really perpetuating that culture of scarcity and, and telling us that we are primarily consumers instead of active, engaged citizens. So then what is sufficiency? 
Sufficiency is, is this feeling of enoughness. And it is different than abundance, which just means there's a whole lot of something. If there's a whole lot of rain, that causes floods. Like, that's not necessarily a good thing. So reframing it to sufficiency, one of my um, Shiro's, Lynn Twist, in her book, Soul of Money, uh, really talks about sufficiency and brings that to the forefront. And how can we create this for a more regenerative culture that really looks at ecological limits and not perpetual growth? And so sufficiency is, is having that feedback to know when it's enough, when enough is enough, and, and knowing when to stop consuming and when to stop purchasing things. And so sufficiency is a place where you can relax and let your nervous system just trust the sufficiency of your life. So usually regenerative is used to talk about nature's ecosystems How can we use the word regenerative to understand economics? Great question. So regenerative, uh, you know, means bringing life back into things and creating systems that support that emergence of greater life and vitality. And as I explained, our current economic system is doing the opposite. It's discouraging circulation through extraction and wealth hoarding. And so a regenerative economy includes things like impact investing, where there is a values-based assessment of what the impact of my money is going to be. And so a regenerative economy would serve to circulate money back into the communities and not extract it into private shareholders. And this is why the not-for-profit model is also very significant in understanding how we can shift to a regenerative economy because it really does account for the impact that is not only financial but also include our ecosystem and the relationships and how each exchange and economic interaction has what the impacts are. For instance, there is a difference between uh, price and the cost of something. And the price that you see on the price tag in the store often does not reflect the whole cost of that item. If you actually accounted for the ecological impact of the resources being drawn out and, and so really being able to have better information to support purchases that are in alignment with our values uh, would also significantly allow us to be more active participants in the regeneration of our ecosystems and our society. Is there a difference between not-for-profit and non-profit? Um, Not-for-profit is a more inclusive term that includes like industrial foundations, for example, the company Bosch and Velcro are some examples of larger companies which you may not have realized were run in this way, where there is a mandate to distribute and recycle the profits into things which are in alignment with their mission and charter. So instead of extracting the wealth into the private shareholders, that is 
um, circulated. So not-for-profit enterprise includes nonprofits. You know, in the U.S., it's 501c3, um, but is a broader international term. What is regenerative culture, and how does your work contribute to that? So... Firstly, I think it's important to acknowledge that we are in a period of collapse. On many levels, this is an uncomfortable truth to acknowledge, but we are seeing the growing impacts of climate change. And uh, right now in Southern Oregon in August, we've had smoky skies for almost two months now. And it's really impacting not only the economy, but people's health and well-being. And we're also seeing uh, different population collapses. I just read about the penguins, a whole colony of penguins disappearing, the bees, you know, there's so many species. Uh, so many of these systems, ecological systems are so complex and hard to even comprehend when you talk about a time scale of millennia that some of these cycles may be um, happening in. So. That motivates me to create regenerative systems and then regenerative cultures where we are educating our children in ways to care for the earth. Like you said, it's traditionally been used in an agricultural sense, uh, so that's one part of it, but also how to regenerate our communities and those threads of connection, how people can have their needs met in a really intimate way with people they care about and and not feel like they need to go to Walmart to buy their produce. And so there is a lot of room for moving beyond sustainability, because if we look at sustainability as more of a result of a regenerative system instead of a goal of itself. It's not that we want to sustain the systems that are, they're killing the planet, and we need to uh, participate in systems that are aligned with the life-giving force. And so that's different in every sector, and there's a lot of details um, about how that applies to energy, transportation, investment. And underneath that all is, is the cultural piece of making sense of this great turning that's happening and acknowledging the grief that comes along with watching our planet and its people suffer and knowing that we've been participating in that. And coming to terms with that is the first step of creating regenerative culture, where we can openly grieve together and create what French sociologists called collective effervescence. It's this feeling of belonging that people are so hungry for and that is created through both collective celebration and collective grieving. And so the more we can come together in groups and openly acknowledge the suffering that we've experienced, whether it's like in my workshops with money uh, as the particular topic focus or climate change and the drawdown uh, project, that letting people feel those emotions can then motivate them to create regenerative 
practices in their own life with their communities and be able to create a culture of, of caring where we really bring the humanity back into our systems and our economy. What is the Post-Growth Institute? So this is a international nonprofit, which I've been working with for over a year now as education director. It was co-founded by Donnie McClurkin, who's from Australia and is currently the executive director. And Post-Growth Institute is an action-based think tank, which does research and educational projects, helping people to create, scale, and sustain their own nonprofits. So we have a training program called the Not-For-Profit Way. And we also have something called the Offers and Needs Market, which is a process which people get together in person in 90 minutes to share their offers and needs. And so we can talk more about that. We also have the Post-Growth Alliance, which serves to amplify the voices of our 50 member organizations through social media and our unique strategy for kind of hacking the algorithms of Facebook and and really getting more reach for some of these organizations. And also we have a study happening right now on credit unions and why they aren't providing full service business banking services. And this is it. You think of the move your money uh, movement telling individual people to change to a credit union or locally owned bank. What if we could do this on a bigger scale with our Ashland Food Co-op? You know, we asked them why they weren't banking at the Rogue Federal Credit Union. And they said, well, the services aren't available. And so now we're doing a more in-depth study as to what it would take to, one, get these services offered, and two, launch a bigger movement to have organizations and switch their money into credit unions, uh, which are run as in alignment with the nonprofit values and just could really circulate the money in a different way in the local communities. Yeah, you mentioned the offers and needs market. I've been a participant of several, one run by yourself and one run by Donnie. And it's really been transformative to me and my thinking and particularly around abundance and seeing the abundance around me. Can you describe how the offers and needs market achieves that? Sure. So imagine uh, you come to this uh, this offers and needs market, you know, which could have anywhere from 20 to 150 people. It's really got a broad range of uh, ways you could offer it. And so it's a chance for people to connect in a very specific process to make first their offers because it's an asset-based approach that starts with what's working and what the resources are in the room first. So people sit around at tables of six to eight people, first brainstorming what they even have to offer, which so often is really challenging for people who have you know, been in a traditional career with one thing to really expand people's horizons 
to include things they're passionate about, things they can do with their hands, knowledge they have about places to travel or where to get cheap airline tickets. We just really encourage people to get creative with what they're offering. And that in itself is a powerful part of the process. So then people go through kind of speedy rounds of introducing themselves, what their offer is, and how much it costs, and what their availability is. And then so people do that at the table uh, for maybe 10 minutes or so. And then we move into the needs, which, as you can probably imagine, can be so vulnerable to actually ask for what you're needing. And our culture doesn't really have much space for that to happen outside the monetized market economy, that you need to go and offer someone money to develop that relationship and to have your needs met. And so this too is often just uh, opens people's minds to looking at what their top needs are and asking for them and saying what how urgent it is and what they may be able to pay for it. And so then people do a similar around the table, quick rapid fire listing of their needs in the second round. And then there's time for networking and people go away feeling so well resourced. It's like you opened up a whole treasure chest that they didn't even realize was there in their own communities, their own neighbor who could offer the piano lessons to their kid that they never even thought to ask them. And so it really shifts people's mindset, not only from participating, but how they interact with their neighbors and people and and getting more comfortable with what they're offering and speaking to that and asking people about what they need. And so we see this shift from doing this into more uh, asset-based approach where people really are in their lives able to access greater resources because of looking at the world in a different way, having some of the skills to maybe communicate a little more openly about their offers and needs. And this, I feel, the offers and needs market is a key piece of building regenerative culture. We are weaving the threads of community, which has been so tattered and stressed by the modern commercial market economy, that we are bringing greater intimacy into the market and giving people a positive experience of trading and exchanging with one another and being able to not just put a price tag on it to actually say, I'm negotiable, I'm open to bartering, I have, you know, some flexibility, I'll offer this for free in an an emergency, you know, so there's a whole range and scale of resources that you're able to access through the offers and needs market. So for example, I could say, I'm Loxley and I'm offering to install the Linux operating system on your computer anytime you want for free or I'm Loxley, I need an electric bicycle used, I'm willing to pay $1,100, please contact me. And if somebody wants to run an offers and needs market for their organization, their church, their company, their activist group, How would they go about doing that? Yes. So you can find out more information at www.offersandneeds.com. 
where we also have a training manual available for people that gives you the full facilitation plan for what you would need to do this 90-minute process in your own community. And then we offer additional training support to become a certified Offers and Needs Market Facilitator, which basically ensures that you have the skills and ability to successfully run these. And we've really seen it applied in a variety of situations as part of a bigger three-day festival or event. It's a great way for people to get to know who's in the room at the beginning of some larger events. It can be done to really shift the culture of, say, schools. What if the faculty of a school got together at the beginning of the year and actually shared their offers and needs, both personally and professionally, and were able to really connect in that way? And this is really creating skills which have been lost by so much moving onto the internet. Because of our digital age, we kind of forgot how to just ask our neighbor for the cup of sugar that we needed. So we're bringing back in this human connection, how much you can see by reading someone's body language, how quickly trust can be developed in this in-person interaction. Yeah, and I think also relocalizing economies. There's a great image on the post-growth website of a container ship, and then below it there's an image of a mechanic repairing a motorcycle, and it says, oh, the irony that we can order a vehicle part from halfway around the world, and it shows the container ship, and yet we didn't know that that part and the person who could install it is actually our next-door neighbor. Mm. Do you have any offers and needs success stories? Yeah, there is. You know, it's quite amazing. It's like the offers and needs market creates the space for synchronicities to happen. And so often you'll be sitting right next to the person. We've seen it with a hardwood flooring, someone who needed that for their remodel, a very specific offer. And someone else just had that in his shed, you know, wanting to move it on and, and gave that to her. We've seen people connect with professional opportunities. There was one that one of our facilitators, Tanur Ali, did in Washington at a larger event. And this woman was looking for her next uh, professional opportunity, job opportunity, and she found the perfect opportunity at this nonprofit organization where the founder of it was there and was stepping down and wanted someone just like her to come in. So this woman moved 2,000 miles across country to actually take this position at this organization because of the offers and needs market. So that was incredible. And there's so many chances, too, for entrepreneurs to practice making their pitches. We've seen people get more confident and be willing to take the next step in, in starting their business or organization and feel like they can get the resources and team they need to make that possible. What is the new economy movement? How would you describe that? So we can probably all sense that Things are changing and transforming, and our economy is definitely one area where there's a lot of pioneering thinking about how we can do this differently. How can we cooperate as a human species and not destroy our earth and imprison people with poverty? 
And so there's a lot of names for this, you know, the sharing economy, the caring economy, and the new economy movement really includes innovative ways for people to come together and share resources and align their values with their money. And so there's the field of investing. If people are interested in this, RSF Social Finance, uh, which has a lot of innovative grant programs where people, I'm participating in one this fall, where seven organizations, a representative comes together. We have a $50,000 grant pool that we decide together how it will be allocated. Uh, between these organizations in this day-long meeting. So there's a lot of innovative ways where people are bringing greater sovereignty to the individual to be able to make decisions in alignment with their values, to really be able to have systems like complementary currencies and time banks is another field of looking at how we can have many different mediums of exchange that aren't debt-based fiat currency like the dollar. And another field is also state banking. Currently, the only one is in North Dakota, and that was founded at the early 1900s. And they fund, say, state development projects like building a bridge. Often these big projects, like 40% of the budget goes to interest on the loans that are taken out by the public taxpayers and government from private banks who create the money to build the bridge and then have to pay all this loan interest. So what if we could actually close that loop and be able to have state banks, which were funding these projects and not extracting the wealth again into private hands? So there's a lot of movement in this field where we can create economic justice through micro lending and through more human scale projects that allow people to participate in the economy in a way that is building value in their own communities and regenerating their culture and land that they live on. Is there anything else that you would like to add? Uh, you can check out my website, money-morphosis.com, and find all of my podcast episodes there. It's on iTunes as well, money-wisewomen and really encourage people to have some money conversations with people. Take what you heard today on the podcast and talk to your loved ones about it. Be willing to get uncomfortable and say, let's look at our investments and actually, are they in alignment with our values? Let's look at our true wealth. I also have a five-day free email course that you can uh, sign up for on my website that takes you more deeply into how to apply the true wealth template in your own personal life and really assess where you would like to invest your precious time and money and energy. And I want to remind people that your attention is one of your greatest assets. So spend your attention wisely to create the future that you want for your great-great-grandchildren. 
and look at ways to participate in regenerative activities that bring greater vitality into your local communities, into the earth that sustains us. And thank you. Thank you so much, Crystal. Thank you for your research and your podcast and all these great ideas. Sure. If you would like to delve deeper with Crystal Arnold into all these inspiring topics, then you can learn more by visiting her website at www.money-morphosis.com. Also, be sure to check out Crystal's podcast called Money Wise Women. If you enjoy this episode, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us get the word out and attract more listeners. And please support our 501c3 mission and vision of bringing more inspiring stories of resilience and possibility to the world. Your donations are very helpful. You can make a one-time donation at rally.org slash or become a patron, meaning you give us a donation each time we create a piece of content. Learn more at patreon.com slash or by using the Be a Patron button on the Podbean podcast app. We really appreciate your support. Audio interview and recording by Loxy Clovis at storyconnective.org. Audio production by Loxy Clovis. Interview by Loxy Clovis. The intro song is Which That Is This by Dr. Turtle, released under the Creative Commons Attribution License. The outro song is performed by Rebecca Rhapsody. We are grateful to our nonprofit umbrella organization, ELSA, at ellssa.org. The purpose of this audio interview is for nonprofit education, news, and commentary. This podcast is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Like License. Thank you for listening to the Story Connective. <laughs>